So let's start out with a question this morning. You can just reflect on this yourself. How bad is it to show favoritism? How bad is it to show favoritism? Think, you know, in a scale of one to 10, one being no big deal at all, 10 meaning 25 years to life level bad. Um, And if you want, you can just kind of quietly whisper to the person beside you what what number you would assign. How, How bad do you feel it is to show favoritism? Or think about it this way. Imagine, you know, when you're a kid and you're kind of playing around on the schoolyard, you know, of all the things that you could get in trouble for, all the things that you could get sent to the principal's office for. Where did showing favoritism rank? Choosing to hang out with certain kids and ignore other kids. You know, where, where in the list of indictable offenses, where, where did it compare to like throwing a snowball? You know, how, how bad is it to show favoritism? Or think about it as an adult in your workplace, as an example. You know, when you, when you associate with a certain crowd and maybe kind of avoid another crowd, you know, how, how advantageous is that to you? Does it, does it help or hurt your chances of getting promoted? How bad, really, is it to, to show favoritism in our lives? I ask that because we're in the middle of this series called Saving Faith, and We're studying in the book of James, a section where James is highlighting for his original hearers, first century Christians, uh, some really big no-nos in a life of following Jesus. The kinds of things that are fundamentally incompatible with a life of faith that he wants to save people from. He wants to rescue their faith from these behaviors. That's why we've called the series Saving Faith, Rescuing Religion from These Certain Behaviors. And, uh, you know, last week we launched into this series and, and Mike introduced this concept by James of what he called the cheap talker. That the person who talks a good game, but in their faith they really don't ever kind of live it out. Their talk doesn't match their walk. In our day and age, we'd call that the hypocrite. And I think all of us can track with, wow, there's, there's just total incompatibility in a life of faith with being a hypocrite. And it's something that you can understand James would want to completely eradicate from a faith community. Well, in that same vein, James continues on in the section of text that we're going to look at today. Only today, the thing that he's highlighting as an ultimate no-no that he wants to completely eradicate from a faith community is nothing less than favoritism. Of all things that he could kind of choose to speak to, James speaks to the issue of favoritism. Check out what he says in chapter 1, or chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, in the letter that he wrote. He says there, my brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. They must not show favoritism. Some translations, if you're following along on your personal device, you brought a Bible along, uh, it might say, do not show favoritism, as if he's being kind of suggestive for a behavior that they should avoid. I don't believe that's what James is saying. A study of the language has a a, a much more present tense kind of feel to what James is saying. A a more accurate translation might say, stop the favoritism, implying that they're already doing this, and James wants them to cease this behavior of favoritism Among them, And it kind of makes you wonder what the big deal is. And so for the rest of the passage that we're going to look at today, this is actually the question that James addresses. The question that James answers by spending the remainder of this portion of text that we're going to look at today explaining why. Explaining why from God's perspective favoritism is such a big deal. 
What he does in this section is, if you're taking notes, he kind of breaks it into kind of three chunks where he makes three kind of building block points about why favoritism needs to be eradicated from the church. And he starts off by saying this. First of all, that favoritism at its core is judgmental. That favoritism is judgmental. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's really the crux of what he's saying here. In doing that, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is highlighting an example, again, an example that I understand to be real in his time, not just a hypothetical scenario, but something that was happening in their community. And he describes two groups of people, very easy to understand. The the first group of people, the first first example person, has a gold ring and fine clothes, James says. You know, uh, the example of a person who would be wealthy who would have prestige and power and influence and status, and more importantly, the kind of person that other people in the faith community would love nothing more than to cozy up with to befriend for their advantage. On the contrary, he describes a poor man in in kind of really ratty clothes and someone more practically that probably would provide no advantage to the people around them, someone on the very other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And not only does he contrast these two groups of people, he he contrasts the ways of handling or treating them. And he describes the preferential treatment that's provided to the person of greater means, that they're given kind of the best seat of the house, while the person in the shabby clothes, the poorer person economically, is given the worst seat in the house. Or in fact, maybe not even a seat at all. You stand or you sit on the floor by my feet, sitting in a seat. And in this contrast, James isn't just describing the contrast in behavior. He's asking kind of a rhetorical question to make his point and say that when that happens, when that preferential treatment happens, that's actually nothing less than discrimination. That's why favoritism is so serious in the church. It's discrimination. It's making a value statement on people based on their outward appearance or more selfishly based on what you believe, what you calculate they could do for you. It's providing preferential treatment based on what you believe people can do for you. And he says in the process of that discrimination, you're becoming a judge with those evil thoughts. You're positioning yourself in a form of judgment and exuding judgmentalism by your favoritism. Starts off by saying that's why favoritism is such a no-no in the church, why we've got to eradicate it, because favoritism is judgmental. Now, in our day and age, when we think about last week and the idea of being hypocritical and how off-putting that is to people outside the church, and we add the idea of being judgmental, for many of us, we understand that that's enough. That's such an ugly phrase that we could just kind of wrap things up in a neat little bowl, close in prayer, and go home for lunch early. But the funny thing is, James isn't done. In fact, he's just beginning to build a case for why favoritism needs to be eradicated from the church. And he continues on by saying not only is favoritism judgmental, on top of that, he says it's misjudgmental. 
Meaning it doesn't just make judgments about people. It makes wrong or incorrect judgments. Read on in verse 5 where he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Meaning pay attention to this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. You've done exactly the opposite. And as well, he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? There's no doubt that James has echoes of his brother Jesus and his teaching in his mind here where he's remembering phrases that Jesus would teach like blessed are the poor in spirit or how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God as he kind of creates this contrast. Not that James is intending or Jesus was intending to be reversely discriminatory, but rather Jesus and now James is recognizing that certain people based on, among other things, their economic capacity can have kind of biases in their postures toward God. And James is understanding, as Jesus affirmed, that for people in economic need, it actually in some ways is easier for them to be aware of their need and easier for them out of that need to orient their hearts towards God and dependence on him. But the flip side is also true that what makes it so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is that it lends itself to believing that you're self-sufficient, that you're independent, that you don't need anyone, and more importantly, you don't need God. And out of that independence, it kind of stifles your heart towards God. And in that contrast, Jesus is saying that that's how, you know, people often posture themselves towards God. But on top of that, James doesn't look, just look at the postures of these two groups of people. He also looks particularly at the rich and many of their outward behaviors. Because at least in James' culture, it may be true in our day and age as well, you know, often, you know, people who have high degrees of financial capacity don't always get those high degrees off of pure, you know, good luck or good fortune or inheritance or just doggone hard work. He says, you're, you're oppressing the people around you. You're exploiting, you're backstabbing, you're manipulating things, taking people to court, you're abusing the system. And as a result, what James is highlighting here is a way that God views things differently than the way that people are viewing things when they show favoritism. When they show favoritism, they're viewing things according to socioeconomic class. And what James is saying is not that God judges people or looks at things through a different socio socioeconomic class, but actually that God doesn't judge through socioeconomic class, but rather through the posture of people that expresses itself in behavior. God assesses people and their relationship to him according to their heart attitude that manifests itself in behavior where we may be tempted to look at the outward experience, outward kind of physical what's going on. The Bible says that God looks at the heart. And so what James is saying is that in addition to being judgmental, you're actually judging people incorrectly according to the value system that God judges people on. Their heart attitudes towards him manifest in outward behavior. Not only are you being judgmental, but you're being misjudgmental and judging people inaccurately. Well, as if that wasn't enough. James adds a third point on top of being judgmental and being misjudgmental. He says, thirdly, that favoritism is also self-judgmental. That by exercising favoritism, you are actually condemning yourself. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, 
you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. He says, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. What James is doing here is building kind of a, a logic case under this idea of what he introduces at the beginning called the royal law. And again, he's probably got the words of Jesus in mind, where Jesus was confronted one day about, of all the 613 laws that he could prioritize, which one mattered most? And he said, the greatest commandment of all of those was the commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus described as the greatest commandment, what James is undoubtedly referring to here as the royal law. But then he makes a bit of a, a, a logic statement to say, you know, if you break the law in one way, you are just as much of a lawbreaker as if a person is breaking the law in a whole bunch of ways or in every way. To break the law in one way is to be a lawbreaker like any other lawbreaker. And he's building that logic case to say, if you show favoritism, and what favoritism is, is loving some people and loving other people less, then you are actually being unloving towards some people when you exercise favoritism. And if you're being unloving towards some people when you exercise favoritism, and yet the royal law that God cares about most is the law of love, to love God and to love people, you are actually violating the royal law. And if you're violating the royal law, then you are a lawbreaker like any other lawbreaker who's completely ignored all or any of the law of God. What he's saying is that by exercising favoritism, through the context of the primary value of love of God and people, what Jesus called the greatest commandment. If you're exercising favoritism, you're actually violating that and you're condemning yourself. And so I hope we can appreciate today why from James and from God's perspective, favoritism in a faith community is so nasty and needs to be eradicated so quickly and so completely. Because at the end of the day, it's judgmental. It's discriminatory. And on top of that, it's misjudgmental. It assesses people totally inaccurately from how God views and even judges people. And then on top of that, it condemns yourself. It's self-judgmental. Just a nasty, nasty thing, this favoritism. So thankfully, James wraps up this school of thought by providing us an alternative. It says in James chapter 2, verse 12, instead... He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now in this antidote to providing favoritism, James provides something that's a little complicated to understand and kind of uh, contrary to what we may assume. And so we'll walk through it a little more slowly. What James says at the beginning is, notice is that the antidote to favoritism and to all that judgmentalism and misjudgmentalism and self-judgmentalism, the antidote is actually to position yourself to be judged by God. To position yourself to be judged by God. It's kind of counterintuitive. But James is saying, instead of playing the role of judge, play the role of the person who's being judged. And that might not feel comfortable for people, you know, in first impression, because, you know, if you imagine yourself being judged by God, knowing that you're a fallen, broken, kind of sin-stained, ordinary human being, you know that you are guilty of offenses against God and deserving of God's punishment. 
right? If you position yourself to be judged by God, that's your kind of first feeling. But notice then he says, to position yourself as those who are going to be judged, he says, by the law that gives freedom. By the law that gives freedom. And what he's referring to there, again, with his brother Jesus in mind, is the saving work of Jesus' sinless life, sacrificial death, and miraculous resurrection that enables people, when they stand before God, to instead be forgiven by claiming the work of Christ for themselves in faith. And he says, when that happens, when you position yourself to, you know, be judged by God or under God's judgment, but according to the law that gives freedom, according to the saving work of Jesus, well, now you're relating to God in a completely different system. What we refer to many times that the Bible describes as a system of grace, where you are actually given things that you fundamentally did not deserve in freedom and forgiveness and new life with God through Jesus. But at the same time that you engage in that grace-based system through faith, something else happens. You not only receive what you don't deserve, you don't receive what you would deserve. And that's not called grace, that's called mercy. And so what James is saying is that if you'll position yourself as the one to be judged, not as the one doing the judging, and you'll position yourself in that way, remembering what Jesus has done for you and claiming it for yourself, then you're in a position where you can claim God's mercy. And by claiming God's mercy, you then become a product of God's mercy. And by living as a product of God's mercy, living under his mercy, living into his mercy, you will start to live out his mercy in how you relate to other people because you will start to see other people in the way that God sees you. And even if you were led to kind of judge or assess other people, you would do it from that mercy-based perspective where you would see other people as equivalently under the mercy of God because of what Jesus has done for them, that they are equivalent products of mercy as you are. That's what James says is the dynamic, counterintuitively, that can eradicate the judgmentalism of showing favoritism, is instead to position yourself under God to be judged, claiming the work of Jesus and his grace-based system that instead makes you a product of mercy so that you can live under, live in, and live out that mercy in, you, in the way that you relate to other people. He says if you do that, that mercy will triumph over the judgment that you would have otherwise lived in if you were going to be exercising favoritism. I hope that we see what James is trying to do here with his original audience in trying to take a group of people who were relating preferentially to other people according to what they could get out of it and trying instead to get them just to see people equally and fully the way God sees them based on mercy. Of course, you know, the primary application today is you know, across the socioeconomic spectrum. But the truth is, in our day and age, we're tempted to kind of gravitate towards people and gravitate away from other people and exercise that subtle but nasty dynamic called discrimination for a whole bunch of other reasons as well, aren't we? Socioeconomically, we can discriminate. You know, based on age, we can discriminate based on gender or, or, or even gender identity or sexual orientation, we can discriminate. 
based on race or ethnic background, we can discriminate based on marital status or, or lack of marital status or lack of family status, we can discriminate based on religious background, based on theological kind of leanings or biases, we can discriminate. There's a whole bunch more reasons in our day and age that we can discriminate, isn't there? James says, though, that there is absolutely no place in the Christian church for discrimination, especially when you get yourself out of that self-orientation that assesses and values people according to what they can do for you, and instead put yourself under God in that heart of being judged where you claim what Jesus has done for you and recognize that through that you can receive mercy and then live in and live under and then live out that mercy in the way that you see and ultimately treat everybody as equal products of the mercy of God. So the question today is really in what ways in our lives do we still discriminate? In what, what, what ways in our lives do we still show favoritism where we gravitate towards certain people or certain types of people and away from others? Maybe in the exact context that James was originally speaking to, maybe we tend to do that in an environment like this. You know, maybe it's the people that we kind of sit with or sit around or the people that we avoid sitting near. Or how about the people that you spend more or less time rubbing shoulders with and chatting it up in the lobby before or after the service? Are there different kinds of people that you naturally exercise hospitality with and others who have never been in your home before? Think about your life group. You know, are there certain types of people that when they're asked about by your location pastor, you think, oh yeah, we would have room for them. But other people, when they're asked about, you think, oh no, our group's kind of full right now. We're brand new. We're still getting to know each other. We're seven years old as a group, but you know, we're still kind of working things out. Think about your friendship circles. Are there people, you know, in your work environments, in your social loops as neighbors that you naturally gravitate towards and people that you flatly ignore? I won't even ask if, I'll just ask where. Where is the greatest degree of discrimination and favoritism expressed in your life? Now, that's one of the questions we've got to walk away reflecting on today. The other one is, what would it take in a practical way every day at the very start of our day when we set aside some time to be quiet before God, and in intermittent moments during the day when we're driving our car, washroom break, you know, kind of reflecting after work or, or getting quiet before bed. What, what are some times during the day where we can posture ourselves as being judged instead of judging, claim the work that Jesus has done and remind ourselves that through that we are actually products of his mercy so that we can live under, live in, and ultimately live out that mercy in the way that we see and ultimately relate to everybody around us in an indiscriminate kind of way. Gang, I hope this is a challenge for us today. I feel like at the same time, I hope that this is an encouragement for some of us today. Because I know that over the last years and even decades, God has done significant work among so many people in this community in this regard. You know, the way I see people these days kind of orienting their time investments and their relational friendships are just vastly different than they were years ago. The way that even our church collectively organizes its budget and invests, invests its time and its programming and even its priorities. We just came out of a Hope Live series that was all about this. The way that we can value people and relate to all stripes of people through the wonder of mutuality. 
God has done a whole lot of work among us in this way, but I hope that today the challenge that James provides is an even greater catalyst for us to root this out of our hearts and lives and root this out of our church as completely as possible. Because in the same way that there is absolutely no room for hypocrisy in the church, there is no space for discrimination, especially that's, that expresses itself through favoritism. As we wrap up, I want to invite the band up uh, to play one final song. And uh, as they prepare, I just want to make a, a short comment, specifically today, to those who come from economic means. For those of us in the room across all of our locations who would be in that wealthier category, and given the amount of conversation we've had about this over the past couple of months, reflecting on our pennies, you know, considering global rich lists and things, I'm sure by now you know who you are. I'm sure of that because over the last couple weeks and even months, you've been taking kind of a beating around here, being reminded again and again and again about the disproportionate challenges to live out of faith when you have financial wealth. And you got to know today, I'm not going to take my foot off that gas pedal. There are disproportionate challenges to people who, as we describe around here a lot, have been afflicted with affluence when it comes to living a fully devoted life with Christ. But what I want to encourage you in today is that in light of God's mercy, you in that place have a unique opportunity, not just a unique challenge. See, the way God intends for the church to work is for it to be kind of a potluck meal of activity where everyone brings the very best of what we have to each other so that together we can bring that to the world around us. And we need the best of everyone at the table. We need the best of everyone's teaching capacity. We need the best of everyone's singing and musical ability. We need the best of everyone's care for, for kids and for students. We need the best of everyone's prayer capacity. And we need the best of those who've been entrusted with disproportionate capacity to make money. And who've been entrusted with disproportionate capacity financially. Especially this time of year as we approach our economic year end. I'm not going to hide from that reality. We say it all the time around here. That we need everyone's help to help everyone. And if you are in a place of disproportionate financial means, you have a unique opportunity to contribute in that way. Here's the thing though about this morning. Just because you have a unique opportunity to contribute to our church does not mean that we can treat you uniquely because we can't. For us as a church to treat you uniquely for us to give you special or preferential treatment would be to behave more like a country club. That's what a country club does. It treats, gives people special preferential treatment according to their financial means. And a country club is very different from a church. A church is where everyone who equally has received the love and saving work of Jesus Christ comes together equally and stewards equally the best of what God's entrusted for us so that... Not just we benefit, but so that ultimately the world around us can benefit from that potluck way of living. A country club lives for itself and for its members. A church is one of the only entities on planet earth that fundamentally lives for something other than itself. The church doesn't live for itself. It lives for the world around it. And if we're going to fully be the tidal wave of God's love that he intends, then we all have to live in and live under, and then live out the mercy of God that sees one another equally while we bring the best of what God's entrusted to us to the table. 
So let's get rid of the discrimination of every stripe. Let's get rid of the behaviors and preferential treatments of favoritism. And let's live in and live under and live out the mercy of God and just bring our best to God and to one another so that we can be the incarnate mercy of God to a world who desperately needs it. Let's pray together. God, as we wrap up today, we just want to respond by thanking you for your mercy. And as we position ourselves in a way that views what we, outside of the work of Christ, would deserve, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that we can put our trust in Jesus. And we're thankful for the mercy that flows out of that. I pray that you would enable us now to see that, to live in, and to live under and ultimately live out your mercy in amazing ways that are inclusive and unifying and harmonizing of all people so that together as we bring the best of what you've given and entrusted to all of us, we can be the greatest gift to the world around us. We pray these things, thankful for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.